0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sari, and his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree at Moray at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Most stories of Abraham describe him as a remarkable man of faith, and he was. But I want to tell you ahead of time that my story of Abraham this morning will not focus on the nobility of his faith. Why? Because I'm not telling a different story. I'm telling the Abraham story differently. Our commitment to biblical revelation, it seems to me, has the potential for eclipsing the natural way of understanding and seeing story. Because a natural way of understanding and seeing story is that story communicates truth fables for instance outside the scripture communicate a moral a, a truth but it would be rather narrow of us to assume that even a fable only commi- only communicated one truth and in much the same way when we approach the sacred text what we call the narrative of Scripture. It seems to me it would be narrow of us to suggest that a story communicates only one truth. So I invite you, if you haven't already, and I'm sure you have to a certain extent, to put on a different set of spectacles and see the story of Abraham, not from the perspective of his incredible faithfulness to God, but from the perspective of his foolishness. Now, before I assume this reading of the story, and before I engage in what some people might call hero bashing, okay, I want to acknowledge the nobility of Abraham's faith. It probably would be inappropriate of me not to do so. Because he is a man of faith. But I tell you in advance, that's not the primary approach to the reading of the story. First, the significance of Abraham's faith. In this text, still called Abram. Abram was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees, then later to Haran, to go to a land that he did not know. Obviously, there was no way to know about this land. You couldn't do your geographical research the way we can nowadays. You know what's amazing? I I don't know if the new generation, that would be the one that's not mine, actually searches out a place where they may go and live by going to a virtual map where you can drive down the street and look at the houses. On Can you believe that, really? Come on. I saw one of those Google cars the other day driving around uh bloomington and it was the first time i'd ever seen it i mean i know you can do it on the map but i hadn't seen this car driving around with a camera on top of it 360 degrees taking pictures as it went so that when i clicked on the map i could actually see the front of my house unbelievable well the point is abraham had none of that he didn't even have a road map an old rand mcnally road map God just told him, I want you to go to this place called Canaan, which he probably knew of, but it's a place you don't know. Get up and go. That's remarkable faith, to hear from God and to actually get up and go. Where did Abraham originally come from? Well, the text says Ur the Chaldees. Now, you might wonder where that is. That's a really good question. There's always a mystery about ancient geography, right? So let's not get too bogged down with details. We could conjecture about where Ur of the Chaldees is because we know at least of some of the archaeology that has discovered places that seem similar to the place where Abraham lived. There's lots of ambiguity in terms of biblical archaeology and ancient archaeology because the maps changed all the time, right? And besides that, you can encounter that today. Suppose I said I was going to Brazil or Peru, and I told you it was an hour or two hours away. You'd say, what? No, you wouldn't, because you're from Indiana. And you know better, right? I could be going to Brazil. I could be going to Peru. I could be going to Paris. Did you know there's a Paris, Indiana? And and never leave the state. So when we see Ur of the Chaldees, we conjecture the place right? Because there's more than one Ur. Not only perhaps at that time, but maybe several after that time. However, having said all that, let's assume for a moment that the 1920 archaeological dig that uncovered an incredible city called Ur was the place that Abraham came from. Don't know for sure, but let's assume it just for a moment. For years, people have assumed that was the place. Of course, every point of geography in the Bible seems to be under dispute. Where was that place? That place was 220 miles south or southeast of modern-day Baghdad. Now a complete desert, nothing but sand. In 1920, a remarkable discovery was made of a city called Ur, and that city had perhaps 300,000 people in it. Now, you might say, that's not too big. Oh, yes, it is. That's gigantic, according to ancient city standards, absolutely gigantic. 300,000 people apparently lived in Ur, perhaps the place where Abraham came from. They discovered, among other things, some architectural wonders of the world. One was called a ziggurat tower. It was a tower that was erected in honor of Nena, the Sumerian god of the moon. Other things they discovered in Ur, apart from wonderful archaeological finds of buildings and things like statues and towers, they also found 1,800 private graves, Six royal tombs, 16, I'm sorry, 16 royal tombs and six grave pits. You know what a grave pit was? A grave pit, best we can tell, was a gigantic pit where slaves, servants of the deceased aristocracy were placed in a pit alive and buried alive why so that the aristocracy when they left this life would not be unattended and would have the same servants that served them in the former life now what we need to know about this city is that it was a polytheistic city that means many gods What we also should know about this city is that it was a very advanced civilization. And what we should know about this city is that what we would consider to be proper morals were not something that were evidently present in the city. Such as six grave pits, burying slaves alive, and many other things. So perhaps Abraham comes from this place called Ur. He does eventually move from Ur to Haran. And Haran is about 500 miles to the north, roughly, of where Canaan is, where he eventually would arrive. 500 miles, not so far. Except if you account for the fact that a traditional caravan would travel about 20 miles a day. Which means it would take Abraham and his caravan a month or more to arrive in Canaan. That too is, it's something we need to wrap our minds around in order to get into the middle of the story. Think of it this way. It's 100 miles to Louisville. It would have taken five days to get there. Two hours or five days. So Abraham is going to a place that he does not know, not on an interstate highway, traveling about 20 miles a day in the open area that for the most part is dangerous, threatened by robbers and all kinds of things. It is an incredible faith. But his faith, it seems to me, is more than an act of simple obedience to move. After many years of looking at this and studying it, I am now convinced that Abraham's faith was just, not just, the activity of moving, but it was the activity of moving from polytheism to monotheism. That is to say, when Abraham hears the call of God, it seems to me that it's not just a call to go, it's an epiphany concerning the reality of the one God, and not the many gods. So... Abraham's act of moving is not just an act of faith to go. I believe it's an act of, can we say, conversion? Abraham leaves something more than a simple act of faith. God calls him to obedience. And what's clear according to the text is that obedience brings certain blessings. However, before we move to the other part of the Abraham story, let me remind you what the blessings are for. They're not for Abraham. Oh, it seems that they are. To have a son is a blessing, but that's not the essence of the blessing. The blessing that's promised to Abraham is promised to him so the blessing can go to others. The entire purpose of the blessing is for the world, not just Abraham. So Abraham, the man of faith, sets out for Canaan. And this remarkable man of faith arrives in Canaan. Shortly after that, realizes that the famine is a little too much for him and his family. So he journeys to Egypt, which is where we find him in Genesis chapter 6. When he gets to Egypt, he comes up with a well-constructed plan. He says to his wife, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. Everybody knows that. Kind of like the Geico commercial. Everybody knows that. Anyway, you're a beautiful woman. Everybody knows that. Everybody recognizes it. And because you're a beautiful woman, you know as well as I do what's going to happen. We'll go to this foreign land and someone like a king will see you and think you're beautiful and want to take you for himself. So now I'm putting words in Abraham's mouth, but this is the essence of it. Since that is inevitable, how about if we just say, you're my sister? And then, my life will be protected. Hold on just a second. Go back and read the text of yourself. It never has anything to do with Sarah. He doesn't say to Sarah, this is the best way to protect you, my love. He doesn't say, you might be killed Or any number of other things. He says in order to spare my life. Let's say you're my sister. Now we're in Genesis chapter 12 now. Stay there. Don't go anywhere else. And see if you can find a reference to Abraham saying. The reason we got to do this is because of the promise. You know the promise. Through us. The world's going to be blessed. So we got to make sure we stick to a plan that keeps the promise from fragmenting. That's not what Abraham says. He might have thought it. But honestly, I don't want to give him the benefit of the doubt. He just said, I don't want to die. So we'll call you my sister. And he does. And sure enough, as soon as they arrive, this beautiful woman is spotted by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh takes her into his harem. And Abraham's plan seems to be going well. Well in effect because he's still alive. But really I I can't write my mind around it. Honestly I can't. As a husband, what's he thinking at night in the tent? Really? She's gone. She's with Pharaoh. She's my wife. What have I done? By the way, there's nothing in the text that suggests that Abraham was thinking that. Just saying. Maybe he was. Seems natural that he would. Of course, you know the story. Before it's all over, Pharaoh realizes, because God puts a plague on him and his household and reveals it to him, that Sarah is actually Abram's wife. And he goes to Abram and he said, what are you trying to do to me? You're bringing this calamity on me? Why weren't you honest with me? In other words, if you had been honest with me, I would have been honest with you. If you'd have told me that was your wife, I never would have laid a hand on her, which actually he didn't, we think. Uh, put it another way, Abraham is chastened by someone who's not a part of the original promise of God. Abram, why did you do this? You know what happens when Abram does this? Uh, Pharaoh treats him well because Sarah is now in Pharaoh's harem. You know what that indicates? It indicates kind of like a dowry arrangement. It indicates that Abram didn't put up any protest. It also indicates that Sarai is in the harem of Pharaoh and Abram is receiving gifts one after another. By the way, we'll advance to another story here real quickly. One of the gifts was probably Hagar. Abram is uh, blessed, ironically, through Pharaoh, but providentially, by God. Even though he's dishonest. Now, let me pause to say this. If you think of the righteous characteristics of a man of faith... Wouldn't you think courage? Instead, you get cowardice. When you think of the righteous characteristics of a man of faith, wouldn't you think wisdom? Instead, you get foolishness. When you think of the characteristics of a righteous man of faith, wouldn't you think faith and trust in God? Instead, you get a human plan concocted by Abraham in a deceitful way. You know what's stunning about this story? More than the story of the self? In chapter 20, he does it again. This time with Abimelech the king. Some scholars have looked at it and said, it's so similar. How could it not be the same story? I want to take it at face value. He did it again. The Circumstances were slightly different. This time Abimelech gets a dream from God and goes to Abraham and says, what are you trying to do to me? Does this sound familiar? And Abraham says, this is where we get the other part of the story. Abraham says, well, see, she really is my sister. She's my half-sister. Oh, come on. It doesn't matter if it's true. She's also your wife. Abimelech sees right through it. Pharaoh sees right through it. You know what happens with Abram here? If we're understanding the larger narrative, okay? We're understanding the larger narrative Abram's unfaithfulness inhibits the blessing of God that could come to Pharaoh and to Abimelech and instead the so-called curses of God come upon them. All because Abram is not faithful. Remarkable story, isn't it? Story number two. Uh, This one happens in Genesis chapter 16. Abram and Sarai decide that they have reached an impasse. God has, as the text says, not opened Sarai's womb. And so they conceive of another ill-devised plan. And that is, Sarai says, I'll give you my handmaiden, Hagar. Probably given to Abram by Pharaoh. An Egyptian handmaiden. Now, before we rush to conclusions, there was nothing uncommon about this. Unfortunate as it is, perhaps immoral as it is, according to the standards of the day, nothing unusual. However, though it was not uncommon, it seems according to the tapestry of the text, it was unfaithful. Because that's not the way God had planned to do it, and Abram should have known that. But in a way, there's something else that's hideous about the story. It might not have been uncommon to give away your handmaiden, but it was harsh. Why? Because Hagar had no choice. Look, I don't know what the condition of her affection or lack thereof for Abraham was. All I know is that when Sarai said, you're his, it didn't matter what she thought. She's a slave. So Abram, complicit with the plan, says, I'll take her as my second wife. And he slept with her and she became pregnant. And as soon as she became pregnant, the text says that she despised her mistress, namely Sarai. Now, it's typical for us to look at that story and say, well, she looked down on her mistress because her mistress didn't have a son by Abram, and she did. That probably is true. But it's also possible, don't you think, that she despised Sarai because she didn't want Abraham's child. After all, it wasn't her choice to begin with. And now I've got a baby coming along. Not by a husband that I chose. You could see it both ways. I'm not suggesting one over the other. I'm just asking you to expand your view of the story. No matter, Hagar despises Sarah. And as you would expect, that becomes a problem. And the household. And so Sarai says to Abram, she despises me now. Instead of saying to Sarai, well, that's because we did the wrong thing. He says, well, she's your problem, not mine. She's your handmaiden, not mine. Do with her what you want to do with her. So the text, depending on your translation, says that Sarai treated Hagar harshly. By the way, it's the exact same phrase, ironically, that's used later for how the Egyptians treated the Israelites in slavery. Hmm. Sarai treats her uh, so harshly that Hagar decides that she's going to run away. Now, this is a woman who's pregnant, runs away to try to go back home. She's going back to Egypt. And it's probably not in her best interest to try to go back to Egypt on her own. And she may have died, except for a theophany, an appearance by God, in which he says to Hagar, I I know what happened, Hagar. Hagar. In other words, I see everything. And here's what I want to tell you, Hagar. Here's what I want to tell you, slave woman of Abram. Here's what I want to tell you, the one who's been abused by the mother of those who will receive the blessing. Here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that you're blessed by God. Doesn't matter your station in life. Doesn't matter that you're outside the covenant circle, so to speak. You're blessed because I am your God. And I'm gonna bless you, and I'm gonna bless your child, and I'm gonna make your child a great nation. So I want you to live, Hagar, under my providence. Oh, by the way, it's the same God who's speaking to Abraham. And I want you to go back and submit to your mistress. Sarai, that's tough stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Go back and live faithfully, and I will bless you. So, Agar does. She goes back to live faithfully under God's blessing. But lest we quickly advance to a kind of certainty concerning what blessing from God means. This person who has promised the blessing of God goes back to Sarai, and things don't get any better. As a matter of fact, they seem to get worse. So that when Ishmael is a young man, Sarai's at it again. Isaac has been born. The promise is in front of them. And Hagar realizes They're really outcasts in their own family. And this time, Sarai banishes her. She doesn't run away. She's kicked out. And God again renews his promise to Hagar when it seems that the boy is close to death, perhaps because of lack of water. And she finds water by the providence of God, and they leave, Permanently, and God promises a blessing. Okay, so there's the two stories. Really, several stories. Question Who are the righteous characters in the story? Pharaoh, so called pagan. Abimelech, a foreign king. Hagar, the slave from Egypt. They're the faithful ones. Does that mean that they were flawless? No. We don't even know that much about their story, but what we know in the part of this thing called the narrative of Abraham's story is that Abraham was the one who was unfaithful, promised the promises of God, and these were the ones who were faithful outside the covenant. Go figure. Tomorrow or next week or the past or the future, you may have been bewildered with God. There's good reason for that. God's mysterious and he does as he chooses and we can't completely figure it out. That's why we walk by faith. We look at justice and injustice. We look at righteousness and unrighteousness. We look at all these storylines that are running all around, all in front of us. And we think, why is it happening that way? I don't really know, nor do you. But there's two things we do know. God has his purposes, and we are called to be faithful. Those two things we can know for sure. So what is there to learn? Oh, so many things from these small stories. First is this. The overarching story about Abraham, it's not primarily about Abraham. It's about God. Which we could say about all the stories in the Bible, right? The figures in the story are secondary and sometimes we exalt them to almost a divine status. God chooses Abraham perhaps because it's the best prospect he's got in Ur of the Chaldees. And he chooses Abraham in a more global way because that's all he's got to work with. Sinful people. Just like us. This is God's story of bringing the blessing to all nations. It's not Abraham's story. He's secondary to the plot. That's the first thing to remember. You might say, well, big duh, Bob. No, not big duh. You know why? Because we're so personal and so self-focused that frequently we forget that this whole thing's about God. And we've just been invited to be a part of the story second thing you learn from this story of Abraham or stories of Abraham. This is not an endorsement. You never get this in the narrative. This is not an endorsement to sin in order that grace may be abundant, right? That's the words of Paul in summary. Paul realizes that this thing called grace could make us absolutely unconcerned with righteousness. Because God's going to use sinful people. It's not an admonition just to live however you want because God's going to work out his will anyway. That's not what this story is about. God constantly calls Abram and other people back to faithfulness. It's just a description of the reality that God uses unfaithful people to accomplish his will. So let's not advance to the next conclusion that we can sin in order that grace will increase. Paul and other people in Scripture emphasize that repeatedly. Third thing uh, we learn from the story is really a question, isn't it? It's probably not the first thing you think of when you think of the story or these stories, but it's a question I thought of as I was looking at all the narratives of Abraham this week. Who are Abram's children? And what's their responsibility? The answer to this question is completely reshaped in the New Testament. Jesus routinely encounters the children of Abraham who call Abraham their father. And he calls them out for any number of sins, but primary among them is arrogance and legalism. And then he says, in effect in more cloaked language than Paul, he says in effect, you're not children of Abraham just because you were born that way. You're children of Abraham when you have faith. And when you have faith in God and follow God, which means to follow me, then you're children of Abraham and then you're a part of the promise and then you have the opportunity to do one thing with what you've been given, it's share it with everyone. No matter what you're, human descent, if you follow God, you're a descendant of Abraham. And your responsibility is to share the blessing. Paul put it this way in Galatians. Um, He said, Christ speaking to the Gentiles primarily, Christ redeemed us or you so that the blessings of Abraham might be passed on to you, the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham is not about Jewishness. The blessing of Abraham is not about land. The blessing of Abraham is not about birth order. The blessing of Abraham is that through Abraham, Christ would come and bless all people, the whole world. That's the story of the New Testament. Paul puts it, In a similar way, except more explicitly in that same chapter, the first verse was verse 14 of chapter 3 in Galatians. In verse 29 of chapter 3, he puts it this way. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. Of course, not by natural descent, but you're Abraham's seed because you have faith in Jesus Christ. And you've received the blessing through Abraham. So, What's the responsibility of those who are called to be children of Abraham or those who are children of Abraham? To share the blessing. What's the opposite of sharing the blessing? Well, let me remind you of a parable that you know very well. The parable of the prodigal son. Here's the problem. For those of us, we consider ourselves to be part of the promise of God. Through Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to become the elder brother. We do, my friends. That's always the ominous reality that threatens us because of our sinfulness. You remember the older brother; he had a sense of entitlement. This is mine. I deserve it. He had a sense of arrogance. I'm better than him. And so I deserve more than him. As children of Abraham through Christ, it's our besetting sin. Entitlement and arrogance. We so often fall in fall into it, don't we? Here's uh, two bits of incredible news that emerge from this story. One is this, a reminder that God will accomplish His purposes in spite of sin. That's the story, the larger story of the entire Bible. In spite of sin, God accomplishes His purposes. So take heart. Take heart in two ways. Number one, the things that are around you. All the circumstances that are around you in the world that are swirling in chaos and other sinfulness as you see it. Those circumstances do not impede the progress of God redeeming all things. He's gonna do it. He's God. So don't get too depressed. It's real easy to get depressed, isn't it? By looking at the circumstances, the world don't. Don't get depressed. Realize that God will accomplish his purposes in spite of all the chaos, in spite of all the sin. He will. That's our hope. Second thing I think is good news is that in spite of sin, God will accomplish his purposes in us. In spite of our personal sins. I can tell you, this is the most encouraging sermon I've preached all year. (laughs) I'm looking at Abram, and I'm thinking, man, am I glad for this guy. (laughs) I mean, he's bad, but I'm worse. I don't deserve grace. (laughs) I don't deserve to be a part of the story. And I cannot for the life of me figure out how God uses me at all. Because of my hideous sinfulness. It should be an impediment daily to God's use of my life, but it's not. Because of grace. He just keeps using me in spite of myself. And that's just incredible news. So, I don't want to say don't worry about sin and righteousness, but I do want to say this. Every sermon's a heresy because it emphasizes one point. I say that all the time. But here's the point. Don't even get depressed about your own sin. Yes, work on it. Take it seriously. But honestly, friends, your personal sin will not inhibit the grace of God in your life or the world if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, says the book of Hebrews. Just keep your eyes fixed on the cross and keep following Him through all the slough. That you create and through all the garbage of the world when you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, your sin and the sin of the chaos of the world will not impede the grace of God. That's incredible news, isn't it? Final thing is this. We, let's not get arrogant. Let's not get entitled. But we, because of grace, are the light of the world. We're the light of the world when we demonstrate grace. When people see us as unworthy of the grace of God and relishing in it. When people realize that they're unworthy of the grace of God and we tell them still there's grace. That makes us the light of the world. We're not in the light of the world, not at all, when we're arrogant or entitled. We're the light of the world when we demonstrate grace everywhere we are. That's a tall order, but you've been given it, so why not give it away? Let's pray. Lord, you're so faithful to us. Um, you, uh, you grant us forgiveness. Uh, You don't just grant us forgiveness in a in a judicial way, though you do. You grant us forgiveness every day in an ongoing way. You use us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sins, just as you used Abraham and so many of your saints, and we just thank you for that, Lord. Please, Heavenly Father, don't allow us to move towards entitlement or arrogance. But help us to be people who just exude grace. Because we've been given so much that we just can't keep it quiet. And that our lives demonstrate this grace. It's really the aroma of Christ. It's like a a fragrant scent when we live in grace that is irresistible to our world. We pray you will help us to be those grace-filled people this week. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.